Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. You are listening to Dr. David DeRose, and today's edition of American Indian Living is one that you don't want to miss. We're speaking about a topic that is so important. It is really looking at one of the dimensions of health that has been esteemed throughout Indian country for centuries, but often overlooked in contemporary society. We're talking about spiritual health. And as data accumulates, we're finding that spiritual health is so important, not just for our spirituality, but for our social health, for our emotional health, for our mental health. And to actually aid us in this very important dialogue is Michael Lessard. Michael is an Anglican minister. He is involved with training ministers and chaplains. He's actually the president of Pastoral Care Associates in Arizona. Michael, it is great to have you with us on today's show. David, it's wonderful to be with you and your audience today. Michael, you bring such a wealth of information to the show, and I think your journey is uh, is a fascinating one. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up training chaplains. Well, I was a chaplain for a hospital here in Phoenix, and with the healthcare industry changing, a lot of chaplains were looking for other jobs because hospitals didn't want to pay for spiritual care. So I started a small corporation, to contract directly with hospitals for the amount of care that we could produce and and provide for their patients. And 20 years ago, we started the process of working with hospitals. We have 12 hospitals under contract and care centers here in Phoenix and in Tucson. And we've been working with people and both the, the patients, patients' families, and the medical staff for all of these years, and our congregation, we have a small congregation that developed out of that, and then out of that came a school for training pastoral caregivers, and we're now opening a counseling center as well. So we're, we're very excited about uh, some of the new opportunities that we're uh, exploring in pastoral care. Well, I'm very excited about what you're doing, and as you and I spoke before the show, I was just in Tucson, uh, actually just less than a couple of weeks ago, and I was there. Actually, a very interesting connection. You and I didn't speak about this, but I'm a co-author of a new book dealing with high blood pressure. It's called 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, and in that book, we included a chapter dealing with spiritual health. And so while I was down there in Tucson, they first wanted me to speak about general health topics, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, some Native American health themes and how that relates to diabetes. But they also wanted me to do a mini-series on spiritual health and how that relates to some of these chronic diseases. And this is an area that I'm finding a lot of interest in, not just from community groups, but from individuals as they go through their own health crises. Tell us, is that just my perception, or are you seeing that on a day-in and day-out basis? I think among the patients that I work with, there is oftentimes a connection to a spiritual community and a sense of belonging, but also there's a tremendous desire for some things like that that people have not explored in their life. And sometimes 
hospitalization is the very first time that they've really thought about spiritual issues. And what does it mean to have an existential question about what life is all about and our place in the universe and our relationship with God? No, and I appreciate you uh, bringing this to the fore because just like you said, many people don't start asking those questions about really what's of value in their life, what is important, those those great, like you said, existential questions. And I found it so interesting as a physician, and uh, I'd be interested in your perspective on this as a chaplain, but it seems sometimes, I've actually had patients that have told me things like the diagnosis that I received may have been in their mind, a terminal diagnosis. Uh, They received a diagnosis of cancer. They say, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because it caused me to refocus my life. Is this a common scenario that you see playing out as well? I think it happens to a number of people, and certainly there is a common theme in that story. A lot of times, however, people are struggling, as you know, with a lot of interior pain, and sometimes the spiritual pain that they feel has been a a, a cause for some of the physical pain that they're dealing with, perhaps in their family and in their history. And pastoral care really is one of those places where we can talk about that in terms of how how do we make amends to the past, how do we deal with the fact that there may be a need for reconciliation, forgiveness, how do we move from physical healing which is our hope and desire for all the patients we see. But sometimes that's not going to happen until we get a handle on some of the interior spiritual issues that we're dealing with. Now, Michael, you identify yourself, and you're ordained by your denomination, the Anglican Church, as an Anglican priest or minister. And some, as they're listening, say, wow, that's great. I'm glad Dr. DeRose has an Anglican on. That's, you know, my faith community Others are saying, well, I can relate, I'm a Christian, but I've got a lot of listeners who, uh, some of them, they're not even very comfortable with Christianity. They come from maybe a more traditional Native American perspective, and Christianity to them is a religion that was forced on them. They're listening to this dialogue about pastoral care, and they're thinking, well, what does that have to do with me? Does pastoral care really train people like yourself and those you're training to minister across the uh, the spiritual spectrum, if you will? That's a very good question, David. I think it does because what we do, what we do in our program is we train people to do active listening before they even come into training in terms of hospital care. So we do 11, we train people in 11 different skills, paraphrase, perception check, creative question, neuro-linguistic, story listening, all of which help us understand and deal with the story that the patient is telling us. And perhaps they're telling us not just in terms of the words they use, but perhaps the body language and perhaps even the disease process itself is an unfolding of that story. So pastoral care has to do first and foremost with an attentiveness to listening to the patient and truly taking time to hear the pain that they're dealing with. So let's put ourselves in the position of someone who is, uh, let's say, raised on a reservation, uh, very traditional in their, their Native American spirituality, very comfortable with that, and they're hospitalized in Phoenix or in Tucson. 
And as they're laying in bed, do you just come to every room? Do you introduce yourself? Does your team do that? Is that part of uh, what pastoral ministry involves? Or is there some kind of a way that uh, the patients get some uh, card where they're signing off whether they want a pastoral visit or not? How does that process work? You know, that's a really good question as well. We um, have uh, a process that we use. It's very informal Patients do fill out uh, whether they want to be seen or not by a chaplain. I had a nurse one time ask me, she says, Father, why don't you just go and see the patients that request to see you? And we make a regular visit for everyone and just stop by and introduce ourselves. And I said, yeah, we ought to do that for everybody. You know, if you don't really think you need a nurse, you shouldn't get one. And Mm -hmm. if you don't think you really want, uh, uh, you know, occupational therapy, well, maybe you don't need that. The truth of the matter is patients don't know what they need. They've tried Mm -hmm. everything at home. They've tried to meet their own needs, and they end up in the hospital because they're sick with diabetes or other kinds of issues that they're struggling with in terms of managing their life. And part of the job of the hospital is to provide services for them so that they may have a healthy outcome. And we found that patients actually get better with prayer and supportive community, and recover quicker from surgery if they have pastoral uh, support and if they have the opportunity to express that to someone who may pray with them from whatever their religious tradition. So basically what I hear you saying is for that First Nation person who's laying in a bed in Phoenix or Tucson and that knock comes on the door and maybe someone introduces themselves uh, themselves as a chaplain, as a pastor, whatever designation that individual uses, if that Native individual does not immediately resonate with the term pastor or chaplain, maybe they should uh, at least be open to meeting that individual because there may be some valuable dialogue. It's not going to be a, a high-pressured environment if it's someone that you've trained. Is that safe to say? Yes, that's right, David. We do a spiritual assessment, which is very informal, like, are you active in a community of faith? Is there someone we can call for you to notify uh, that you're in the hospital, that you would like notified who's a pastor or uh, someone that you're familiar with in your religious tradition, and we'll uh, access that and help that occur? Or perhaps, uh, if not, and you need someone to talk to, we're here to provide support on whatever level we can for you. Now, you mentioned that there is this connection between positive outcomes and pastoral care. Uh, Not all that long ago on the show, we had Dr. Harold Koenig as a guest, uh, and I think you know Dr. Koenig's name there at Duke University, heading up uh, research on spirituality, theology, and health. Of course, there's all kinds of studies that have been done, and and, uh, Dr. Koenig mentioned some of them, making these connections between spirituality and health. Have you seen in your own personal practice, in your own community there of chaplains in Arizona, uh, some connections, or would that be only what we call in research anecdotal, just stories and and not really uh, proving anything? It's difficult to quantify that. We were working with a 
on a project with the Arizona State University uh, with the National Institute of Health to quantify uh, and try to uh, identify exactly what the benefits are in pastoral care. But because the person who we are ministering to or, or caring for comes from a variety of histories and places spiritually, and sometimes even their, the fabric of their past experience is not helpful for their recovery. Hmm. They may have a lot of guilt or they may have a lot of judgment in their life. Uh, there may be other issues that clouded their understanding of God, of a God who loves them and cares for them and is wanting their recovery and wanting them to, uh, to improve in terms of their, of their general overall health and well-being that um, sometimes those hurdles are essential steps for a person to recover, but sometimes they're very difficult to quantify that. I can tell you from many people that I've worked with, thousands of people over the years, that there's no question that people, at least no question to me and people that I've ministered to, that having someone who's caring and listening to them will bring out the story that the person will want to tell. And so what we do is we utilize the skills to listen to the story that the person is telling us and that they want us to hear. And oftentimes those themes that are central to that story have to do with their relationship ultimately to God as they understand it. So, Michael, what I hear you saying is when we try to uh, lump a whole group of, of patients together and see what impact uh, pastoral care or chaplaincy care is having on those individuals is very difficult because it's a, a very diverse group of patients with different needs and maybe even as chaplains you're trying to work with them on different levels. Am I hearing that right? Yes, that's correct. Well, I'm very interested because I know you've been doing some writing, you're communicating uh, with people across spiritual lines, you're talking about some of the essential tasks, the essential ingredients that we need to have a healthy spiritual life, and uh, we want to talk about that in our next segment. You're not going anywhere, are you, Michael? No, I'm right here. Good, good. We're going to be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. My guest, Michael Lassard. Michael is actually uh, the founder of an organization that actually trains chaplains in Arizona and beyond. We're going to dive into some topics and we'll hear some amazing uh, insights into things that can make a difference as far as your whole person health. Don't go away. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with more from Michael Lassard on American Indian Living. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. 
medical unit. Respond to 102 Maple Avenue. Possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm talking with Michael Lassard. Michael is the president of Pastoral Care Associates. He's an ordained minister, an Anglican priest. And, uh, Michael, just as I mentioned, even that background, I think a lot of people are thinking, well, you know, a priest, a minister, pastor, whatever terms they're using, they say, well, these people usually minister in communities or parishes. Uh, to go into chaplaincy doesn't sound like a typical career track for such an individual. Is that true? Are you really in a minority in a chaplaincy ministry? I think so in some ways because um, congregations tend to be doing other things, and I've done all of that in my history. But um, the focus on pastoral care is on exactly that, caring, and not caretaking, but caregiving. And that's a process that oftentimes people look at in congregation life as just a specialized form of ministry, and just a few people are supposed to do that, when in fact we all are called to be caregivers. We all have someone we care for, generally, and someone, whether it's a child, uh, an adult that we're taking care of at home, whether it's our spouse, if they're sick, or if there's issues that have to do with stress, all of those concerns, our friends and family, extended people that we know and care for. All of those are part of our caring community, and people today really need to have some skills so that they can be good caregivers. No, I appreciate that point. Uh, One of the ideas that comes to my mind when I hear that term caregiver is I usually think, and maybe this is a, a misnomer, but I think of giving care to people 
who are often in some sense dependent on the caregiver. I mean, we usually use that term, you know, with young children. We may use the term with, uh, with seniors, maybe parents or grandparents who are no longer able to fully care for themselves, so they need a caregiver. But what I think you're suggesting to us is that really all of us on some level uh, need to be not only caregivers, but we could benefit from receiving some care as well. Am I hearing you right? Yes, you are. Um, my wife died two years ago of Parkinson's. And wow. She was sick for a long time, about 15 years. And as a person who, of course, loved her and cared for her, I had to work all my schedule around providing care for her. It was not a burden, but it was a change in my life and a change for both of us. And I think more and more people are having to discover how and and why and all the other issues surrounding caring for someone that they love. Um, people are living a lot longer, and as a result, the physical needs that they have, if there's a chronic illness or an Ill- illness that is even terminal, they're providing care for that person. And they may be doing it for a long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I mean, that is clearly a reality today. And and you mentioned this concept of not being a burden. And yet at the same time, even though, uh, you know, I hear people saying, you know, that they love this individual, but sometimes the demands are so great that the caregivers themselves uh, become, uh, you know, very, very needy. Help us understand that dynamic a little bit. I think that is very true that people need uh, a community to help them personally. So oftentimes we've looked at the church or the community, wherever our spiritual community is, as kind of another thing we do, uh, a kind of spiritual discipline. But really, the purpose of our community is to support us in caregiving. And so we've developed a pastoral care community out of our of our folks who come and that we minister to in the hospital who after you know after care and still need care, and they need to be able to care for others and so part of the community life is to focus on having the skills to be successful in caring for someone else. so we train all of our members of our community our our church to use the active listening skills. A friend of mine, John Savage, put that whole process together with Lead Plus a number of years ago. And those skills are so helpful in family life, in listening to your children, in caring for your elderly mother or father, or caring for your spouse or friend. Well, we want to definitely talk about these keys to a healthy spiritual life, but if it's not one of them, you've already got our interest about active listening. I think many of us have heard of that uh, practice, but give us a quick primer on it. If if someone doesn't know what active listening is, give us a little training so we can perhaps start employing some of these techniques. Active listening is using all of the available information that a person is is telling you. It's not a passive thing, not just like sitting there and listening. It may be the times where we have to listen and be quiet, 
but by utilizing good questions that open dialogue. So, for example, instead of saying, why did you do that? We say, tell me what was going on in that decision that you made. I need to understand it. Hmm. Or can you help me understand what was going on here? So, in other words, even framing questions in such a way as to enable the person to tell you without putting them in a parental spot where they have to re- react to authority. So the way we frame questions, looking at the nonverbal communication, looking at the eye movement, whether they're using visual, auditory, or kinesthetic channels in their communication. So there's a number of skills now that we have that are available to us to help us be good listeners. And I think that once you're a good listener, you're going to be a good caregiver. Hmm. You know, it's interesting that you mention that because I've had many patients complain to me over the years about other providers. Now, they may complain about me when they see that other provider, but I'm saying they say, well, you know, I saw so-and-so or I saw this consultant and they wouldn't listen to me. So this is a common need that we see in the uh, healthcare community. We see it in the clinic environment, in the hospital environment, and I'm sure... As a chaplain, you probably have heard similar things about the physical caregivers that maybe they don't always have the best of listening skills. Is that uh, unique out in California where I practice, or is it true in Arizona? I think it's true everywhere, Doctor. You know, it takes sometimes a commitment of time to actually listen to not only the verbal things your patient is saying, but the nonverbal cues that they're giving to let you know if they're really internalizing what you're telling them, if they're really able to hear it. And if they if they have been felt like as if they've been blocked or um, just kind of run through the mill, you know a lot of doctors are under pressure, physicians mm-hmm. and other medical staff to get someone through to the next thing so that they can move someone through the process. And oftentimes that depreciates a person's value. And as a result, I tell uh, a lot of physicians that I work with, hey, they're going to keep telling you the story until you hear it. So you might as well hear it the first time because they're going to come back and tell you the same story until you do. Uh-huh. That's a good point. And it, uh, it really behooves all of us, whether we're in a caregiving role, in some kind of formal role like a chaplain or a physician, or like you said, we're just a community member. And I probably shouldn't put that uh, you know, just before it because we really are in a position of helping one another, is it safe to say, just by listening? Absolutely. Uh, I, I, can, I can hear the patient's story when I walk into their room within the first five minutes. And when you they say... They will tell me their story if I don't block them. Hmm. And sometimes it's a story of, of transition in their life. I, I went into a patient's room one time and the lady was in the bed. This happens more often than I can tell you. And the first thing out of her mouth was, you know, my husband died 10 years ago. I said, oh, 10 years ago, that's, that's quite a while back. I said, it was, what was that, what, what, what was happened to him? And, and she began to tell me about what his illness was. And I said, what time of year was it when he died? She says, it was around September, and I said, and what, what, time, what time is it now? Where are we at now? And we were in the early fall. Mm. So the unconscious 
mind has an effect on what the pain we're dealing with, not just in the physical pain, because what she was going through now felt a lot like what she experienced earlier with her husband. So really, by listening, you're tapping into issues that may be very close to the surface, but they may not be elicited in the typical medical encounter. Yes. They're very oftentimes very much to the surface, and the patient may not even be aware that they are there. So we've been speaking with Michael Lassard. Michael is giving us a window on an important aspect of health. We call it spiritual health. And I know we've been talking about this for a little bit, but we want to get into these keys for spiritual health. These really are relevant for everyone, aren't they, Michael? I believe they are, David. We're going to go there. We've got to step away just for a couple of minutes, but we will be back with Michael Lassard. For those of you just joining us, uh, Michael is uh, not only the leader of an organization, he is the author of a book. We'll tell you about that in our next segment as well because it's something that uh, you want to take advantage of. Better techniques for yourself, for your interaction with others, spiritual health, something that can make a difference in your life. We've got a lot more to come. Don't go away. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give, advocate, volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose for the second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. My guest, Michael Lassard. Michael is an ordained minister. He's an Anglican priest who heads up an organization that trains chaplains. He's active in ministry in the hospital environment and beyond, and he's the author of a couple of books. One of them is called Christology of the Family, and uh, the other is The Lost Dutchman, A Treasure Hunt for the Soul. Uh, Michael, I know a little bit about those titles because you've shared them with me, and some of our our listeners from various Christian uh, walks may find those uh, interesting titles. Others uh, may not, but I think they're they're resources that are out there, and I know you've got a lot of resources that are available at your website. Tell us how we can take advantage of your books and other resources. Yes, you can. Just go ahead and... uh put it on your computer at www.pastoralcareaz.org, P-A-S-T-O-R-A-L, care, C-A-R-E-A-Z.org, and follow the prompts, and the books will come up. Um, they, we do minister from a Christian perspective and worldview, so that's understood. But I think you, if for those of you who would like to explore that and or who come from that tradition as well, uh, they would find this helpful and and useful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's also interesting. uh, I know one of the books is a a novel. Uh, That's, uh, you know, the most recent title that you have, The the Lost Dutchman. And then the other book, Christology of the Family, uh, even if someone just wants to look into what is that uh, Christian view, at least from the perspective of an Anglican priest, uh, what does that look like? Uh, Why is... uh, Christianity having an impact on the family, I think they might find that instructive. Is that safe to say? Yes, I believe that would be uh, very useful for people who want to see the significance of of how to give care uh, to one another in their family and to affirm one another. I think that little book would be really great. The novel really was a companion with that first book uh, on, uh, in kind of a way to explain it in, from a different experience, from a story. Very interesting. Well, let's come to this point about these these tasks or these secrets, if you will, to spiritual health. And I know there are things that uh, you're passionate about. You include them in your ministry. I wouldn't be surprised if they find their way into your books. So what really are the key ingredients to a healthy spiritual life? Well, of course, the first and most important thing is to get in touch with with God. Uh, for Christians, it would be Jesus Christ, but for others, there are different forms of belief. But a benevolent kind of God, a God that is good and desires what is good for the person. Eventually, we come to terms with having to make good choices and good decisions for the people we care about and who care for us. And so I think that that is the beginning point of an interior dialogue with God, and then also having some skills that would be useful for us to be spiritually adept with communicating and listening to others in the experience uh, that they're going through. So those two elements, caring for one another, the same way that our perception of God, who cares for us and giving us the world and the universe and the things around us, and the relationships that we have. 
So drawing from that experience into the present experience really is, is useful and helpful. And I, I tell people that there are a lot of really good people out there who can help us and assist us. For Christians, it would be spiritual director, and for in other traditions, there may be others. But as far as our Christian point of view, our, our Christian walk, um, there are a lot of people, our pastors and so on, can be useful and helpful in helping us uh, move to a place where not just that we just have a relationship with God or we just have a relationship with others, but that we have a congruency between those two things. Well, I so appreciate what you're sharing, and it, it reminds me of uh, Dr. Koenig. We mentioned his interview some time ago on this show, and uh, very interesting. I know you're aware of this research, uh, Michael, as as well as many physicians, but uh, people like Koenig in the research community have shown that actually our healing can be undermined, that we can enhance our mortality, in other words, die quicker if we're struggling with issues like thinking there's not a, a divine being that cares for us, that he's somehow uh, trying to hurt us, or we're focused on, on things like judgment or negative aspects of spirituality. And he recently wrote a book where he basically looked across spiritual traditions and showed that regardless of what tradition you look at, of course, he didn't look at every single one, but he's saying every spiritual tradition believes in uh, in a in a benevolent uh, divine being, uh, whether it's a you call it the Creator, the Great Spirit, uh, God. And he was really trying to focus people on this healing element, like you're talking about. Do you find that as a struggle for many people that you find in the hospital? Are they struggling with the fact of a uh, or the reality of a benevolent God when they're dealing with difficult physical problems? Well, you know what I've discovered, and this is with thousands of interviews over years, and that is that people oftentimes struggle with what I call a cluster of events and what John Savage describes as a cluster of events. It's usually not just one, but two or three. For example, a divorce, um, uh, empty nest where the children have left, a loss of someone close to you, a loss of a job or a move, which produces and provokes high stress. And stress leads to all kinds of problems in terms of our physical health. I don't think anyone would argue with that. Mm-hmm. And what happens, just like Archimedes did when he jumped into the tub of water and there was the water, a number of the, of the water was displaced and got onto the floor, you can measure how much volume there is because of how much displacement. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, when we're in a cluster, there's displacement, and displacement is we act in or we act out. And when we act in, we withdraw inside and disengage. When we act out, we get angry, hostile, and perhaps even violent. So what happens in this process is that when a person is under a lot of stress, then the system gets overloaded, and they may not be able to cope with it. And especially if they do not have any spiritual kind of roots, a rootedness in who they are in their relationship to God, then what happens is they have less and less ability to cope with the stress they're under. And they get sick. I find that... About 80% of the people I see in the hospital are disengaged from any kind of spiritual uh, dimension in their life. Huh, that is fascinating. 80%. That's my guess. Mm -hmm. Pretty close to that. If I say, 
if I go in and do a little assessment and ask them, do you have a community of faith? Do you have, have you had a history of, you know, oh, yes, I used to go to church, but I dropped out years ago. Um, and, and I find a lot of disconnection. And the reason for that is because of the pain that they were under then and, and oftentimes feel the cluster they were under then, perhaps, that would cause them to leave, and the cluster that they're in now, which has caused them to be sick. Hmm. So, so let's talk a little bit about some uh, success stories. Maybe there's people listening today that wonder if uh, they have a future in chaplaincy work. Uh, maybe they do come from a spiritual tradition that uh, that values caregiving. Maybe they don't, and they're they're thinking about some of this for the first time. Tell us uh, some things that have encouraged you in in your years of working with patients in some very serious uh, uh, physical uh, extremities. Well, we see, and I'm, I know in, in your caregiving for many of your patients, you see some amazing things where people recover from illnesses, diseases, or episodes, some kind of insult to the brain, for example, through a stroke or other things that nobody thought that they would recover from. And I know... From my experience, the doctors sometimes walk in and they go, I don't know how they got better, but they did. We mm-hmm. never thought they would. But mm-hmm. it's amazing how God can heal people and does. And the community, uh, prayer community of people that you know, trust and love, care for you, gather around you and your family in times of, of illness and, uh, and sickness. And that can be a great support. And the other thing is I oftentimes tell people, there are people all over the world praying for you, and you don't even know them. Hmm. And I know they've done research to show that people who are not prayed for don't do as well for, as for people who are. So I think one of the most important elements is prayer. To pray for a person, to pray with a person, that God would touch, bless, and heal them. And I have lots of stories about that, probably more than you have time for in this show. Well, you know, it might it it might be worth hearing one or two because you know a lot of people, some of them are are uh, you know from a faith tradition. They're saying amen right now. Others are raising their eyebrows. Maybe some are about to to turn the dial because they say, "Oh, come on!" Uh, but you really have seen things in your life that you could explain no other way than some kind of miraculous or divine answer to prayer. Is that true? Oh yeah. Does what does a story oh, yeah. come to mind? Well, a lady came to see me one time from Massachusetts. I was doing what is known as inner healing, praying with people over their past hurts and the clusters of events that had perhaps kept them in, in bondage to uh-huh. pain. And she was a 23-year-old young woman. She had psoriasis, arthritis, and bleeding ulcers. And we started praying together. We met and we were, and it came out over time after listening to her that when she was two years old, she was abandoned by her mother and her grandparents, who both had arthritis, were taking care of her, had been taking care of her since she was little. And we just asked the Lord to heal the brokenness uh, of her relationship with her mother. Uh-huh. And she, after after some time, began to took off all of her braces and started jumping around, you know. She was actually physically healed at that spot, uh-huh. and she ate solid food for the first time in six years. Wow. So, so I've seen mm-hmm. that, and I know that it may seem to some people rather uh, hard to believe, but I've actually I've seen that. 
So, so you've got me, you've, you've got me going with this particular woman, and you know, I'm wondering. Sure, there could be a miraculous element, but was part of it? Did God help her to forgive her mother? Was that was it coming to terms with things? I mean, did you see what I'm asking? Were there some issues that she worked through that you felt contributed to the healing, or was it just something that you think was just simply miraculous? She had bonded with her grandparents through the attachment of her anger towards her mother, and it had developed into arthritis, hmm. into an arthritic condition. And when she forgave her mother, and we moved into God's healing of that memory, uh, she didn't have to hold on to that. That a lot of people were telling me have told me, well, she probably didn't really have it. I said, well, you go to you would have. Conf- absolutely confounded the doctors because they were giving her all kinds of medications for exactly mm-hmm. what they diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there are components to physical and emotional and spiritual connections in terms of health that really need to be explored. And I know that there's a lot more to explore in that. But um, this is uh, just, just facts. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, hard to, I have a hard time explaining it any other way, simply saying it was a miracle. Well, I'm excited about the story you've shared, and I know you've got more, because in our final segment, we're going to try to tie this all together, some more amazing illustrations of the important connection between spiritual health and physical health. You don't want to miss our final segment with Michael Lassard. I'm Dr. DeRose. We will be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. Today's broadcast has been prerecorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. 
Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose and with Michael Lassard for our final final segment of today's show that I've really been enjoying, speaking about spiritual health. It's a topic that I really believe has been neglected in medical care, and I'm so glad for people like Michael and others that are reconnecting us with that topic. So regardless of whether you come from a traditional Native American spiritual perspective, whether you're an atheist or agnostic, whether you're a Christian or a member of some other, uh, one of the uh, uh, larger uh, faith traditions that uh, encompass this globe. We're glad you're listening in. Michael Lassard deals across that spectrum. He's an Anglican priest. He's the president of Pastoral Care Associates based in Phoenix, Arizona. And he's also the author of a couple of books that relate to the topic. One is Christology of the Family. The other is The Lost Dutchman, A Treasure Hunt for the Soul. And again, Michael, both those resources can be accessed either on Amazon or at your website. Isn't that correct? Yes, but I prefer our website because uh, it's easier for us to get books to you. Okay, and so that that uh, website, give it to us one more time. It's pastoral, P-A-S-T-O-R-A-L, care, C-A-R-E, A-Z, dot O-R-G. Okay, so pastoral, care, A-Z for Arizona, Org. So you can get Michael's resources there. And Michael, are there free resources there as well, or do you just have the books for sale? We have the books, but we also can provide any other kinds of information for those who are interested in our schools, or if there's a hospital administrator that would like to contract with us for spiritual care for their patients, uh, it's all there for them. Great, great. Well, Let's talk a little bit more about some of these amazing life-changing stories because I think that really drives home the point of this connection. You, you shared with us that compelling story about a young lady and her psoriatic arthritis. By the way, if my listeners are not aware of that, it's a type of arthritis similar to rheumatoid arthritis. can look very similar, but it also goes along with the, the severe skin uh, condition known as psoriasis can often be very severe and affecting large portions of the skin. So tell us another story. Well, I think you might like this one. It's not about a healing but in a way, but it is in another way. I had been asked to speak at this congregation, and a lady that had been there for many years uh, called me later after I'd been back in the hospital for several weeks, and she said, I'd like to see you. So she came to see me at the, at the hospital. Now, a little office, we sat down, and she said, Father, I'm having a recurring dream. Hmm. And she says, when I was a young woman, I had a miscarriage, uh, and it was uh, full term. It was a fetal demise. And in those days, it was in the 50s, they just took the baby away. I never even saw it. Hmm. And the nurse patted my hand and said, there, there, you can have another, another time. And she said, and I said, oh, my goodness, you just never grieved the loss 
of this baby. She says, it's been, I've been, why am I dreaming about this now? I've had this dream several times. And I said, oh, my. I said, so we explored it a little bit. And I said, where, where is your husband? And she says, well, he's downstairs waiting for me. I said, how's his health? Well, she says, it's a funny thing you should ask. He just got diagnosed with early stages of Alzheimer's. Mm. And I said, well, that's what this dream's about. I said, you're going to end up having to say goodbye to your husband, and he won't even know that you were there. Mm. And, you know, that was a, a tremendous metaphor for what she was dealing with. In this, you know, we did pray over the loss of those children, that child. But more importantly, this child, the loss of those, that child, seemed like very closely akin to the loss she was going through with her husband and not even being able to say goodbye to him. I mean, it's very interesting. So what I hear you saying is that many times things that we're experiencing physically, mentally, emotionally, maybe things that are even creeping their way into our consciousness in our dreams are really sometimes our brain drawing connections that without a spiritual window, we would never make those connections. That's right. That's right. The experience that we're going through now oftentimes feels like a previous experience. Oftentimes in the hospital, when someone is dying or close to death, so many family members will tell me, oh, you know, this felt just like when my mother died, or this felt just like, this feels just like when this happened to me. Because our unconscious makes connections between this feeling like that. And the unconscious does not know time. Hmm. So it's not, it's not in a temporality like our, our, our reason, the higher functioning of our brain. The unconscious only experiences things in terms of their intensity, and it remembers them that way. And when we dream, we dream with the intensity of that recollection that's connected to somehow to what we may be experiencing now. And that's why our spiritual life can be so helpful, because it can help us understand how God is caring for us and does care for us if we bring that, that issue or that cluster to Him for his healing and his love. So, Michael, someone is listening today. Maybe they're at a juncture in their own road, if you will, their own career path. And they're saying, wow, this sounds like something I would like to do. Now, you train chaplains, but in order to train as a chaplain, does someone have to have... uh, ministerial credentials? Do they have to be ordained by some uh, faith community, if you will? Or can someone who's a businessman or a woman who's been a a mother and grandmother, I mean, are there non-conventional routes to chaplaincy ministry? Well, first of all, we can train anyone who wants to learn how to listen. And before we're chaplain to anyone else, we can be chaplains to our children and to our families and to Mm. our friends. So the skills necessary to be a good listener are the first skills of caregiving to others. Those two things are so ingrained in my understanding and my experience that if we can listen, we and hear what's going on and really hear the story of what a person is dealing with, whether it's a family friend or whatever, that is the first most important place to start Mm -hmm. because those relationships last forever. We take the love of those relationships after this life is over with us. And that's the only thing we take. So I think that it's really, really important to affirm that 
to affirm the love and to encourage love by active listening and caregiving. Those are so, so vital. And this is when a person wants to explore chaplaincy. We don't have a expectation that they have to have a master's degree, although that helps in terms of hospital care. But a lot of times people will work for their church mm-hmm. or their community, or they can also provide services in care homes and facilities like that, nursing homes, where their masters of divinity degree are not as necessary. And we can provide those kinds of resources both for churches, for lay people, for congregations, for pastors, because if we're going to be caring, we have to be listening. Hmm. So your training, it's delivered on site there in Phoenix, is that correct, or do you do that through distance education as well? The lab that we teach is called Lab One, and we, because it's interact, interactional between people and we have to practice the skills and learn them and also have an understanding about them and how they work together, uh, it's a 40-hour active listening training. We can do it for churches, congregations. And we can come out there and train. We have trainers that work with us now who will go and that, of course, but uh, and our website has that. Very good. Well, Michael, our time is uh, rapidly slipping away from us. I want to remind our listeners, if you haven't heard the entire discussion with Michael Lassard, he is the author of a couple of books that uh, continue, really, this dialogue that we've only begun. One of them is called Christology of the Family. The other is The Lost Dutchman, A Treasure Hunt for the Soul. The first is a uh, is a factual uh, book, a descriptive book dealing with the uh, Christian outlook on the family. And as uh, Michael has expressed, the second one is a novel that tries to uh, expand some of that dialogue. Michael, before we go, any uh, closing comments for our listeners? I think it's very, very important, as you've been the theme of this conversation, to listen with the eye of love, with the sense of caring, with the ear of caring, with the emotion of caring to people around us. If we can do that, we become more aware, I think, of God's love for us. Tremendous messages. Michael Lassard, he is uh, an author. He's also the uh, the head of a, a group that actually trains chaplains, president of Pastoral Care Associates. You can get a hold of Michael and his team at pastoralcareaz.org. Again, that's pastoralcareaz.org. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully today's show has helped you see a little bit more fully the connection between spiritual health and physical and emotional health as well. For all of us with American Indian Living, As always, I'm wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.